everyone. Welcome to the sixth part of Matriarch Motivation, Becoming a Surrogate. This is my journey through surrogacy, and I am recording on podcasts. I am also videoing for YouTube. So I am currently four months successfully, proudly, happily pregnant with a surrogacy. The intended parents are a beautiful uh, couple of men two men from France, and I am here to share my story on my new podcast, Matriarch Motivation. So I created this podcast. We're about to have a cat join us in just a second. Um, I created this podcast because I am someone who absolutely loves motivational videos and speeches, but it is a male-dominated industry. And although there are many incredible, powerful women not all though, there are many powerful and incredible women contributing to the motivational speaking community, I felt like one, there needs to be more voices in that community. And two, I often felt that there was not one speaking um, speaking to the things that I I needed to help inspire me. So I find that a lot of male speakers are coming from a brute force, aggressive power, and also that what they speak to a lot is a fight against an exterior foe, that there is an external antagonist in their life, where I believe a lot of the battles that women face in their lives are spiritual ones, that they are emotional journeys and paths that we take within ourselves and that we are um completing and fighting through for completely different reasons than men. So also in addition to that, many of the women motivational speakers that I listen to have a lot of um, faith-based speeches and talking about um, connecting with the universe and a higher power and a power outside of them. Whereas I have worked very, very hard to design, create, build, and execute um, a power from within myself. And so one of the goals of how I carry my life now, how I create my life, is to put out into the world what I wish to see. Because I know I'm not a unique snowflake millennial, and that I'm not alone. If I have hopes, dreams, desires, and preferences that there is other people out there missing what I'm missing and looking for what I'm looking for. And if I can't find it, it's uh, important to create it. And I encourage everyone to be doing that with their lives. Uh, if you're doing it with something positive that's meant to help people. And so matriarch motivation is just that. And now who am I? The creator of matriarch motivation. I am the founder of Pretty Aggressive Industries. Um, I come from a background of recovering from transgenerational and intergenerational abuse, and I have built the recovery tools and resiliency tools in order to overcome that and start thriving in my life instead of simply surviving. And now I have created a business that helps, that turns around and lends my hand back to people still looking for those tools of recovery and looking to evolve, thrive, grow, and level up their life. So here we are. I think I covered all of the three things that I like to cover at the start of 
my my podcast. So we're now on section six. This was supposed to be a four-part series, and I just have this cat that's made herself at home in my lap. Okay, so that's how the podcast is going to go. If you hear some jostling, it's because a cat is either making an exit or making herself more comfortable in where she's decided to have a rest. Um, the entire time I was setting up for this, she was politely napping on another piece of furniture. Now I'm in. So just to review the last couple segments, I started this journey back in 2018 when I experienced my first ovarian cyst rupture in November of 2018. And since then I have had a wild ride full of lessons and journeys and, just trailblazing shit to figure it out. <laughs> and I do need to, from last from last episode, part five, where I had my first en- embryo transfer that was unsuccessful, I actually realized, I listened back to the story, that I had made a, like a memory error. So I described in the last podcast, uh, last episode, that I had been dumped on the second the second embryo transfer, the morning of my second embryo transfer. And that's actually not true. I was dumped on my first embryo transfer. So I was dating someone who got very fed up with my highly committed and regimented schedule and that they weren't seeing enough of me and decided that on that very special day of my life to tell me to not bother ever talking to them again. And actually, it proceeded into them uh, berating me for the next month and a half until I had to um, call the cops on them and file a harassment report. <laughs> so, because I have firm boundaries, I have very firm boundaries. When I tell someone, this is a lesson for anyone listening to this, when I tell someone to please stop contacting me, I am dead serious. I am not kidding. <laughs> I have dealt with it before. I am I'm not joking. So, just as that, as a pre-warning. So... The, we left off with the second embryo transfer and the one of the things I also want to go back to, which is a lesson because again, sharing with women in the women tribe, women community is so important. During the first embryo transfer, you prepare for it a month in advance. So leading the month leading up, you act, they actually start you on contraceptive for I believe the first um, like... 10, 10 to 14 days of your of your cycle. So after you're done bleeding and you've had your last day of a bleed, um, they start you on contraceptive uh, with the reasoning of like setting your cycle properly so that they know when you're going to ovulate, so that they know when to uh, in when to implant you. So they set an implantation schedule for you, an embryo transfer. And the, I told the medical office, I told the fertility clinic that was that was that manages all of the hormone and the transfer and everything that I respond very poorly to contraceptive. And I told them that the only contraceptive I stay level with, that my hormones stay okay with, is the Nuva Ring. And that I need an extremely low, low dose something, anything. So they were uncomfortable with prescribing having me use the NuvaRing for the first half of that month and prescribed me what a product called Lolo, which is the lowest level of 
estrogen, I believe, in contraceptive that's on the market. And I actually spent those first two weeks um, of that month in such a dark, horrible cloud. And I think that the the amount of estrogen is literally like 11 milligrams a pill, where an average something, an average pill, something like tricycline or a less is around 20 to 22 or 40, even up to 40 milligrams of estrogen. And that's for that effect in a woman's body. I think women really need to pay attention to what contraceptive does to your mood and does to your body. And one, to, to, I know it sucks. I know it sounds hard, but to experiment and find something that takes you level. And if that's the path you want to take for contraceptive, and if not, to find an alternative method for contraception, because um, having those extra hormones upset your life changes everything. I, I lose perspective, I lose joy, I lose engagement, and to have something I'm choosing to take have such a negative effect on my life is honestly atrocious for, one, the medical system to be creating something that flips women's lives upside down so much, and then for women to voluntarily be taking it, figuring that they have no other option, and for us to not be designing more options for us to have stable access to contraceptives so that we can have sex for fun, because we're absolutely fucking allowed to do that. Um, I think that there's a serious gap in uh, what women want for their lives and what is being offered to us in order for us to enjoy our lives. So yeah, that's just my my big barking say on that one. Now, going going into fast forward to the second embryo transfer, I told them that I would absolutely not take contraceptive again and told them that if there is any way around that, um, that they needed to find it for me. So for the second month, the month that started before the second em- embryo transfer, they, they told me that because my cycle seemed regular, I wouldn't need to take contraceptive. And I really questioned why I needed to go through two weeks of dark hell in the first place. Um, there was lots of tears. There was lots of um, re-questioning like major normal decisions in my life, um, being very sensitive and reactive to shit that normally I would be able to manage my mind around like a ninja. And um, so I'm like, I, I am telling the office, I'm telling the fertility clinic, I am not doing that again. And they, they, they allowed me to make that choice. So going through the second embryo transfer, um, one of the other interesting extras for the hormones that after you've had the transfer, they have you not only taking vaginal suppositories of progesterone, progesterone, um, progesterone, they also have you start taking a, a oil-based injection into the muscle. So either in your butt or um, in your arm. And this, I turned out to be allergic to the shots. So that I, my injection site on my, on my upper butt muscle, on my upper glute, that uh, where the shot would go started to be like break out in hives more and more each time. And it actually got to the point where I had to stop 
taking the progesterone shots. You only take them every, I think, twice a week. Um, but they were they were quite agitating to my system. Um, and the other part of my journey was that I I experienced a miscarriage, like a full miscarriage at nine weeks into a pregnancy, not knowing it happened until 11 weeks, um, back in, I believe, 2014. So my, my trigger points for experience and miscarriage um, are, are still kind of close to the surface. And I think women, women are not getting the support that they need for that experience, one. And two, because of my relationship with my mother at the time that that happened, that was a very devastating and difficult experience for me to go through. I did not have the um, woman tribe empathy and compassion and support that any of us would would hope for from at least one person from our lives. I had none. So um, looking, sorry, I was going somewhere with that. I know where I was going with that. The what happened after that for my second pregnancy, with all of the grief and sorrow that happened from that first miscarriage, um, I went into my second pregnancy, which turned into my my five year old daughter that I have now. That being being careful while trying to be pregnant is not a thing. So one of the interesting things that's actually put into a surrogacy contract is um, written in that that the surrogate will not engage in any um, like physical activities that could be hazardous to the pregnancy. And they list things like um, hot tubs and saunas, which are average for any pregnancy to not, to not get in a hot tub or sauna while you're pregnant. But it listed in the contract things like snowboarding or mo- like, mo- like motorbiking and a few other just as examples. And I actually fought to have that taken out because there's not actually any of those physical activities um, such as motorbiking or horseback riding or um, snowboarding that is potentially hazardous to a pregnancy. What's potentially hazardous to a pregnancy is having some sort of impact fall or crash or body impact trauma. And so that can happen falling down a set of stairs or jogging and tripping or hiking or like crossing the street or driving a car and for it to be put that um, for me to contractually sign that I'm not going to engage in any sort of um, like physical activities. I'm like, I'm not agreeing to this. And I actually had to make an argument between lawyers that I would not sign off on that that absolutely I'm not going to get in a hot tub or a sauna um, and that things that are known to cause pregnancy, either deep defects or um, pregnancy, you know, issues that I won't participate in those, but there's no medical justification for a woman to not go horseback riding or join an aerobics class or go snowboarding while they are pregnant. Um and that, that was my firm belief and I stuck with it. And I'm really glad I did because at four months pregnant, I joined a boxing class. <laughs> I'm not sparring, but my God, um, I think that it's it's also another thing that I, I hear a lot of while I'm pregnant, which is, how are, oh my gosh, how are you feeling? 
And I have to turn to people and be like, it's not cancer. I'm not dying. And yes, there is one side of it where women where where some women experience pregnancy symptoms that are very negative, that um, really upset their lives and that are hard, hard to go through. And so I see people approaching me with um, an empathetic or compassionate approach, wondering how I'm feeling, which is not the usual greeting I get from people when I'm not pregnant or when they don't know is, hey, how's it going? Or what's up? Or how was your day? Or what did you do this? Like, what did you do on the weekend? Like, what have you got going on? But to get the how are you feeling? And I'm like, oh my God, it's just annoying as fuck. <laughs> and, but I, I have to look at both sides of it. This is, this is a huge lesson for people who react strongly to, to um, cultural norms or social norms, like people who say no problem instead of you're welcome, or people who, um, only see I'm sorry as um, like a blame-taking apology instead of just someone expressing empathy or connection, that so many of us are hung up on our own perceptions and perspectives of what certain languages are for and certain tones are for, and we, we, we place that responsibility on other people who have no fucking clue that we think that way or feel that way or have that framework within ourselves already. So it's a, it's a big lesson for people to uh, not, not jam everyone else into their expectation framework of how to act and how to behave and how to treat others because almost no one is on the same wavelength. <laughs> it's very rare to randomly bump into someone who has all the same social norm constructs of appropriateness than we do. <laughs> so I, I take the, how are you feeling? And I, I politely answer. <laughs> <laughs> and then joke about it with my friends later who already know where I'm at with that. Or or I make the joke and I educate them <laughs> that it's not cancer. <laughs> I'm not dying. And so this, this surrogacy, this um, second embryo transfer was very um, – I was very gracious moving through it. I – I tried to not have expectations, especially after the first embryo transfer was unsuccessful. Um, and I actually did a few different things. So one of them was having the blood work and m me me being able to see the blood work example, uh, the blood work results of the pregnancy uh, before I took the pee stick test, which I, which I would pee on a stick and then call the intended parents. And then we would wait together in the bathroom and like watch the stick either like change to a plus or, or two lines or whatever. And that I secretly already knew the answer. <laughs> and I know that's kind of devious, um, but I have that right because I get test results to my own body before anyone else does. And even though, and it's really funny because the fertility clinic kind of had to play play catch up with us where I would get my e-health test results on my phone and then I would be able to share that with the intended parents and the amount of tears and crying and celebration and then like the two days later the fertility clinic would get the results and email all of us and be like congratulations like you know you know we're happy to inform you that you're pregnant and we're like we know thank you 
you don't need to be super involved in that post in that announcement for us. Like we appreciate, um, we appreciate that, but you know, we're, we, we already know. <laughs> um, but it's, it was, so that's, that was a sweet process. And for, um, for all of us to get to the like nine days after the transfer to be able to take a pregnancy test. Um, this is, this was just the beginning of the, of the, of the, of the kind of tense wait. So as, as the surrogate with the intended parents that were celebrating the positive pregnancy tests and knowing that we are pregnant, that the embryo transfer worked, we now have, um, I believe 10, 10 more weeks to wait to get outside of the high potential miscarriage window of the first three months. One of the most interesting things about the embryo transfer is it's not day one of your pregnancy. It's actually day 14. So um, when, when you do an embryo transfer, they're actually implanting an already pregnant, like pregnant egg and sperm put together, egg and sperm put together as an embryo. And so by two weeks later, I'm actually already a month pregnant, month along. The embryo and fetus have gotten to a month along, which is crazy um, to think through that. So uh, as I'm, I'm still not announcing to tons of people that I am pregnant, um, but I'm, I'm gently mentioning that the embryo transfer was successful to the people who in my unit who have kind of known that I'm going through this journey and people are very happy for me and very supportive. And I'm still getting a couple of like weird questions, like, and, and very like presumptuous questions again, like having to go and educate people on what, what this, what, what the plan is. And for people to be very curious about random things that, um, and also the experience of people telling me horror stories that they think that they think that's a great, a great place to do that. Um, and it's, I get that it's a way, again, it's having perspective on how other people are trying to communicate care or that they don't have a lot of thought management or mind control over their behavior or their actions or their reactions. Um, as people use terms like, how are you going to feel when they take the baby? And for me to have to take a deep breath and look at them and tell them they're not taking the baby. I'm giving it to them. I've, I'm the one I'm making right now is one I've already pre-agreed to make for them. I'm no one's taking anything from me. I'm, it's like I'm, I'm building or making a gift that I already intend to give to a certain set of people. Um, and to, to change the mindset around that and to have people, um, talk to me about, um, you know, oh, like someone I knew did that. And like the parents kind of like that took, like took the kid, they separated the mom. And then the mom was like the, the birthing mom was heartbroken. And like, it was really hard to like, let go and to be separated from the child. Like how, how do you think that's going to go for you? And for me to genuinely have to admit, I don't actually know. I, I've never done it before, but to also talk them through 
I, I know what I'm, I know what I'm doing. Like I agreed and I signed up for this and it's also biologically not my child. It's someone else's egg. Um, and so I have no legal rights to this child. So that's one factor. Um, and the other, again, major factor is that I'm making this to give to someone I'm, and yes, of course, it's going to be, um, a, a separation from someone that I've carried for nine months, but to have the perspective and have the, um, understanding that it's going to the people who love it, that who wanted it, that I've been intending to create it for. I did this on purpose. And the whole other third section of it that became a really interesting, um, discussion, uh, not just between me and others, but with myself. So when I first went through the surrogacy journey and I was choosing intended parents, uh, I, I spoke in an earlier episode how much time I put into finding parents who wanted the journey to go similar to how I wanted it to go. So I had already picked parents who I kind of, we all had the idea that we were kind of creating a global family that I, that we would never be separate from each other really ever now. And that we would know each other for the rest of our lives and not just know of each other, but have a relationship. And it got to a point where I was questioned about this so much that I became unstable in my own, um, my own thoughts and ideas and beliefs about what that meant between the intended parents and I. And I, I, I became unsure as I continued to explain it on my own by myself to people that I'm going to know this child for the rest of my life and it's going to know me. There's, that child's going to know that I'm a surrogate and that um, our two families will attempt to take vacations once a year and meet up and, and spend time together um, across the world and to make those one of our vacations that we make each year and that my daughter will know this child that I carried and know the intended parents and that we'll stay connected for the rest of our lives, that um, it was it became kind of hard to continue telling other people that story when I was the only one telling it, but there's two other adults involved in that story. So I made the smartest decision I could where I went and checked with the intended parents. I sent them a video and told them what I was experiencing, that um, what my dreams were of our, our family's connections after this child was born. And these really hard questions, not difficult questions, but difficult for me to continue answering um, to other people in my life about what's going to happen after the baby's born and will I, how much contact will I have with them and how long are they going to stay after the baby's born and how much contact do I get with the baby after? And, um, so I, I sent them a video asking these questions and the, the video I got back from one of the intended parents, um, and the other one later, like doubled down and confirmed, that it was emotional and moving and like so supportive. They, they confirmed every single heartfelt um, connection and like word that I, that I said in my video. 
they told me that child's first word, first food, first picture, first day of school, you're going to be involved. That I, their, their last words were, you can't get rid of us now. Um, and our child is going to know for their whole life, as soon as they can comprehend it, that you were the woman who carried them and made, made her for us. And I just, it was so powerful. And I think a lot of people really miss out on gaining that opportunity to have their feelings and their thoughts or their, even their worries and concerns either, um, justified or, or lifted off their shoulders by not approaching the vulnerable moment of just asking to just, just ask people, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? Are you on the same side as me in this situation, in this circumstance? Um, can you please share with me your thoughts on this? And I don't, I don't think enough people take the courage to approach those moments because they really set us on a much more clear path in our lives. And that's what communication is fucking for. That if you don't attempt to connect, if you don't use your words and your body language and your time and your space and your gifts to reach out and, and press your fingers up against someone else's heart, that no one's going to do it back to you. And it's why we experience so much devastating loneliness in this world. And it's such bullshit. It's such bullshit that we can avoid. And we're just going to, and we're back. The podcast gives me only a half hour per segment. So we're clearly over the half hour, but um, to, to keep going through this story, um, the, the pregnancy carried, carried on for a little bit for a while into um the first ultrasound would be at six weeks which is earlier than most pregnancies would get so the the fertility clinic is very invested in making sure i got pregnant and then once i get to a certain pregnancy level they very politely exit out of the process and tell the intended parents and i that it's it's in your hands now and we don't need to be involved so there's a point where the hormones stop and there's a point where the pregnancy is confirmed as like viable and healthy and the emails and the messaging and the questions from a fertility clinic and their nurses stop. So um, we had, we had a very scary moment. I had a very scary moment early in the pregnancy. We're at about almost six weeks, um, a few, I believe maybe 24 hours to 48 hours before the very first ultrasound. Um, I started to bleed. And I was extremely scared that I was having a miscarriage and I had cramping and I had blood clots and it only happened for a matter of three to five hours and then stopped. And my first, my first reaction reactions were fear and devastation and worry and um, disappointment, um, impending disappointment that I didn't want my first, I didn't want my first call to be, to the intended parents, um, halfway across the world who are, have no control over the situation. Um, 
And as much as I wanted them to be there and be at my side for that, um, I made the conscious choice to call the fertility clinic. Um, I had to call the doctor on his after hours phone and explain what was happening. And um, for him to tell me that, that exactly what I knew, that all we could do was wait for the ultrasound. So I waited, I believe, just until the next day. The bleeding had stopped. Um, there was no like continued uh, need for worry medically, really. By going into the ultrasound, I was very scared. And, uh, and I had a more hilarious experience going into the ultrasound, which, <laughs> again, a life lesson. So as I'm in the ultrasound, the woman knows that I'm at six weeks, that my expect like my expected date and um, what what part of the journey I'm on. So ultrasounds, first ultrasounds are usually done at eight weeks. And the ultrasound technician, even though she knows I'm there for a six-week ultrasound, is kind of, oh, well, it seems very small. It's a little undersized, but there there is a heartbeat. And I'm like, all I'm hearing is it's small and undersized. And in my head, I'm already making this story that my body is not making a viable pregnancy, that this baby's not going to survive, that it's on its last limbs, and that the bleeding was just the initial indicator that, you know, I was going to miscarry anyway. And I came away from that ultrasound, just doom and gloom and feeling like my fears had been reinforced. So I... I called the fertility clinic and told them what the technician had told me and um, but that there that there was a heartbeat and that the size um, the the ultrasound tech had told me confirmed like six weeks and two days, which is exactly um, where I was at exactly to the day of the pregnancy. So but my mind had already decided that something was wrong because of the bleeding and then the way the information was delivered to me from the ultrasound tech. So it took another like 24 hours. So like probably one, 24 to 48 hours later when the ultrasound results have been sent to the fertility clinic and the doctor has looked at the ultrasound for the clinic to call me back and be like, everything's fine. The, the baby's the exact size it should be. It has a strong, healthy heartbeat at the, at the rate it's supposed to. N- n- there's no problem. And so for me to like have been texting with the intended parents like and to be giving them the information I had before talking to the fertility clinic about that it was everything was fine, that my filter of what I communicated to the intended parents was that... Um, to like to not to not be super hopeful that we might we might not have a viable pregnancy right now. It's it's still there right now, but to not get too much of our hopes up. And then two days later for everyone to be updated from the uh, fertility clinic's point of view that everything's great and everything's fine and nobody worry. <laughs> so that was that was a hard that was a hard like few days that and that stress that just eats at you in a pregnancy where you have no control over anything to be able to manage your mind through that I mean there was I think there was a few like a good whole day in that section where 
I had already emotionally let go of that pregnancy, which is, which is crazy what our minds are able to do um, to our realities, that I was already committed to the fact that I was going to lose the baby and that I wouldn't be pregnant anymore. And I had already started to plan out like my next month. Like I was going to drink myself into a hole. I was going to be the depressed, spiteful, shitty, like woman who couldn't be a surrogate. Like I was very, I was, I was developing pre-bitterness to my story <laughs> and to, to, to understand that our minds do that, that they commit to this, this sorrow um, and that sometimes we can design failures before they happen it's it's crazy making and to be able to watch and have perspective on ourselves that we do that uh, especially as women with our bodies over things we don't have control of that we can really set up an optimal environment and still not be able to have any control of the outcome um and then we rolled into an eight-week ultrasound which was uh incredible and elating and then we rolled into a midwife appointment. So getting a midwife was a very interesting experience for this. Um, I was able to get on with the same midwife I had for my first pregnancy, which was incredible. Her name is Jen Hugo. She um, it works. She she's the midwife out of Bellies to Babies here on Vancouver Island, and she is just a dream worker. She does not have a bedside manner that everyone appreciates, but you kind of have to like dig past her wall, and she'll like she just blossoms with warmth and you kind of have to be the type of person who like pushes past it for her to like give you give it back it's 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 an interesting relationship um or an interesting dynamic and to be on the phone with her and for her to kind of talk me through like I usually don't take surrogates because I am absolutely not having contact with the intended parents I'm not having separate phone calls with them like I'm dedicated to your care you're the one who's pregnant the baby is inside you you're the one who gets all of my attention and care and focus and I'm not running around making like two to three other phone calls and like confirming with them results and explaining things to them like she's like if I hadn't had you as a um as a previous client there's no effing way I would be taking you and then especially since I'm um, contractually we have to give birth in a hospital so she loves home births I love home births but again in the surrogacy contract it stipulates that I need to birth this child in a hospital. And she's like, with COVID and surrogates, like, you're lucky I'm letting you <laughs> into my roster. I'm like, thank you, because I don't want to deal with anyone else. If I have to have an obstetrician attending or an actual legitimate doctor, I'm going to lose my marbles. No, thank you. The medical system is so um, over-invasive with with pregnancy and birthing. I am not interested. My home birthing experience was so incredible and smooth and powerful and enjoyable that um, the thought of now needing to go to a hospital for a birth um, kind of like rubs me the wrong way. So again, that's going to be a whole interesting other side of the of the surrogacy where there's a bunch of things that I've contractually agreed to. And obviously I've looked through it. I, I have agreed to them. And knowing myself and how to manage my mind through all of that, um, it's, it's going to be an interesting process. And I think if anyone's capable of coping with it, it's me. <laughs> so here, here we are. We've, we've had a, uh, an initial midwife appointment. Um, we've heard the baby's heartbeat. 
at, um, I think 10, 10 or 12 weeks. And I was able to share that video with the intended parents, which was a beautiful, another tear filled experience. And one of my favorite things about when, when we're celebrating things, when we're celebrating milestones of the pregnancy, um, they, because they're from France, they're often like drinking champagne and crying with their friends. And I'm sitting here like sober and teetotaling and like, yay, it's so great. And they're like bawling their eyes out and um, celebrating with champagne. I'm like, you bastards. (laughs) Um, And I wish I could celebrate the same way as you, but you know, I'll have a little bit of ice cream and we'll call it a day. So here, so here we are after, um, I think, I think I've shared kind of the, the majority of what goes on for what's been going on the past few months. I mean, between the weird questions and be choosing to be the educator and having to make quite a few compromises and, you know, kind of loaning my body out, but for this greater purpose that I believe so deeply in and that I'm so glad to be on this journey. Like I, I have just learned so much. And I'm so proud of where I'm at. Um, and the next, the next follow through, um, I guess I'll be continuing to share the journey as it goes. And my my next interesting chapter is that now I'm moving out of this four person apartment unit. So I will be going on my own. My daughter and I will now be getting our own space again. And at at a month from now, when I'm five months pregnant, I will be moving all my stuff um, to an, a different dwelling. And in the height of still launching, still moving my business forward, still trying to gain more clients, still trying to design better, more incredible programs, still trying to write my next book, still doing podcasts and filming and educational material and being involved in my community all at the same time as as being pregnant with a surrogacy. And one of the most interesting things that my best friend said to me really early on was she called she called the surrogacy um, another another project to remember what when I'm thinking about my plate of how much is on the plate in my life and what's going on in my in the ecosystem of my life to understand that the pregnancy is like a whole other project that I'm doing and I was almost kind of offended when she explained it that way when she called when she called the surrogacy a project um because that that is how i term my work that i do when i'm developing a a parenting workbook or when i'm writing another book or when i'm launching a nutrition program these are projects that i work on that i spend a number of months um designing and creating and then i put out into the world and for the surrogacy to be deemed a project I wasn't quite sure, and I guess I need to do the spiritual exploration of um, is, do I consider this a project? And if not, what is it to me? So every time I try to do a new training system in the gym to get new results, it's a project. Every time I try a new nutrition plan, it's a project. Every time I um, you know, do a new piece of writing or a new piece of filming, it's a project. This is a project. Um, is the surrogacy a project or not? And why or why not? And why do I value that? And why does it insult me to have it? Co- why does, why do I feel insulted? That is, um, again, offended, which isn't, we need to look at that. We need to wonder why we have that reaction 
to certain comments and to figure out a way to let it go or re-explain our, our perspectives to adjust our perspectives on um, our thoughts and feelings around things like that. So I guess, I guess that, that leaves us up to where we're at and our four part series becomes, becomes a six part series. And this is matriarch motivation. Um, I hope you found something in that that you found valuable and matriarch motivation is not done. I will be continuing with a number of different, um, formats to deliver, uh, inspiring motivational speeches and talks to women on matriarch motivation podcast. So I hope you continue to join me and I hope you found this exciting and there will be more updates maybe every couple weeks or every month and um, just to share where I'm at so that you can join me on this journey of surrogacy. And uh, thank you. I love you all and see you next time.